0: Welcome to The Mariner's Library with me, Chris Dammel-Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. We're on the third story, and this is part six of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out The Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, The Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 4. White Flannel Days by Helen G. Bell Before the historic depression of the 30s, which altered permanently so many things in the world, yachting was something like what many landlubbers think it still is. Huge schooners, paid crews and white ducks, caviar and champagne all the way. One of the last of these deck chair affairs was the 1928 ocean race to Spain for a cup offered by the then King Alfonso. Here is an account of life aboard the winning yacht Eleanor, 136 feet of Heroshoff's best, during 17 July days from New York to Santander. There were 46 in the professional crew from captain to second massman, and two ladies and two gentlemen in the brass buttoned amateur afterguard. This passage, recorded by the owner's daughter, belongs in the record, for those days will never come again. Already, after only 20 years, it sounds quaint. At last, a wind sprang up from the southwest and the warning gun was sounded. Eleanor was on the far side of the line, but heading back towards it. She sailed across it and then when the skipper who was steering calculated by his stopwatch that there was just enough time left, she swung around and went for the line. The result was that, just after the final gun sounded, she crossed well ahead of the other boats. Behind the Elner came Mr Lambert's famous three-masted schooner, the Atlantic, winner of the Kaiser's Cup in the last transatlantic race, which got the wind of the Zodiac, sailed by Mr Johnson, and soon pulled ahead of her. Behind the Zodiac was the Guinevere, belonging to Mr Palmer and the Azara, owned by Mr Baker. The five great schooners made a magnificent sight as they crowded all sail and headed for Spain. Our tug accompanied us for some distance, as well as many yachts, but finally, one after the other, they all saluted us with the customary three blasts of farewell and good luck, and turned, leaving us to our fate. The next three days were easily the most exciting of my existence. It had been predicted that the race would be between ourselves and the Atlantic, and it soon seemed obvious that the prediction had been correct, for the Eleanor and the Atlantic kept in sight of each other. In fact, the two boats sailed what might have been a race on Long Island Sound, for the same tactics were employed. There has undoubtedly never been another ocean race, where two yachts were in sight of each other for three days, and their skippers sailed them as hard and as carefully as if the race were to last only a few hours at first light. The light southwesterly winds exactly suited us, and we maintained a good lead while the hull of the Atlantic slowly disappeared below the horizon, and the other boats rapidly dropped behind. Unfortunately, for us, the breeze the next day began to freshen, and the Atlantic became a dangerous opponent. We could see that she was shortening the distance between us, and each time I reappeared on deck, and my anxiety did not permit me to remain below for any length of time, I looked hurriedly and uneasily astern to be sure that she was still there and had not crept up on us. By pushing the Eleanor continually, we maintained our lead for the remainder of the day, in spite of the increasing force of the wind. But the next day, when it began to blow harder, our balloon jib topsail split with a loud noise and we were obliged to take it down for repairs. The job took a good three hours, although six men worked on it as fast as they could. During this time the Atlantic pulled up on us, came a beam and finally passed us, a fine sight with all her sails full. It was obvious that she was being magnificently handled by her rear guard, of whom Charles Francis Adams II, the great amateur yachtsman, was a member. Our sail was now mended and we put it up as soon as possible hoping against hope to retrieve our lead slowly but surely our hopes were fulfilled and we crept up on our rival in the wee small hours of the following morning we passed her in turn it was a great moment for we were so close to her as we pulled ahead that we actually took the wind out of her sails spectacular as this triumph was We did not profit by it long. The wind steadily increased in force and once again our balloon jib split, this time quite seriously. There was nothing for us to do but to set about repairing it and face the fact that our light sails were not to be depended on and would very likely lose us the race. The main saloon was turned into a sail loft and each time a balloon jib split, sailors worked on it day and night until the sail was mended. During these operations, we could do nothing but curse our fate and gnash our teeth at the thought that the light sails had been thoroughly inspected by an expert who had reported them to be in excellent condition. We decided that we would make a little list of the people whom we would like to hang at our yardarm and that he should head it. But we also made a note of the fact that in an ocean race, a set of medium-weight sails should be carried for use in airs which are too strong for the usual light canvas. All these decisions did not prevent the Atlantic from profiting by our predicament and gaining on us. In this crisis, as a last forlorn hope, we put up our extra balloon jib, brought for port-to-port racing in Spain. But it too soon tore, and we were overcome by despair. On the third afternoon, the Atlantic passed us and sailed out of sight, leaving us in a state of the deepest depression. Not too depressed, however, to be amused by an incident which occurred soon after. We had not anticipated that our light sails would prove rotten, so we soon found ourselves short of light canvas for patching. Heavy canvas we had in large quantities, but just as the scripture tells us not to put a new piece of cloth in an old garment, so our experience taught us not to patch light canvas with heavy, for the sail invariably tore where the heavy canvas joined the original material. In this emergency, the first steward came to the rescue and proffered some old white duck uniforms. These were of the proper weight, and so found their way into the balloon jib topsail, presenting an astonishing and far-from-yachty appearance. Even with their assistance, however, We knew that we could not trust our light sails at any time during the trip. Now that our rival was out of sight, we settled down to the routine of an ocean race, with all the unusual sensations which accompany it. No one who has not been on a long yacht race can possibly imagine how tremendously thrilling it is. In an ocean race, no one knows how long it will last. It may be two weeks, or it may be a month and every minute is intensely exciting. In our case, for 17 days we ate, drank, talked and thought of nothing but the race. When the wind died down, we fumed and fretted, picturing our rivals enjoying a fair breeze. When the wind blew half a gale, it was heartbreaking to have to shorten sail. Always there was the ever-present question, where are the others? Weak radio signals encouraged us for a day, and on the next day comparatively strong ones plunged us into the deepest gloom. There was little sleep and no rest. The boat must be pushed at any cost. At dawn, when there is a tendency to slacken, we must take special precautions. Before breakfast we must push her, and all day as well. Before dinner we must be sure that every possible ounce of speed is being gotten out of her and after dinner, we must see whether conditions have changed and anything better can be done. At bedtime, we must make another inspection and later check up the results by nightly prowls. The minute a squall moderates, we must get the topsails up again, and nothing must prevent us from making the most of every change of wind, even if we have to set and trim sails by the light of an electric searchlight and electric torches. The ropes and rigging must be watched like a hawk for fear the continual chafing should make them give way. Men are sent aloft at least every watch to examine the rigging minutely, and if the slightest sign of chafing is observed, the exposed spots are protected by canvas or leather pads. Often preventer halyards and runners are rigged so that if the original rope gives way, the others will hold. Any unusual noise must immediately be traced. It may mean trouble, Continual tension and unceasing work. No slackening, even when the wind blows great guns. The spray comes over the bow in sheets and the rain pelts down in blinding torrents. Whether you and your men are wet or dry, cold or hot, hungry or exhausted, the speed of the boat must be considered first. Most of the time our weather was excellent and we sailed along, by day on a beautifully blue sea with an even bluer sky overhead at night with brilliant stars above. A light but steady breeze from the southwest enabled us to make good time. Our record run from noon of one day to noon of the next was 280 miles, or more than half the speed of this steamship Majestic. The skipper was on duty 24 hours out of 24 in an effort to hurry us along to Spain, but during the calm weather the ladies of the party found plenty of time to lie out in the sun and watch for whales. During the voyage across the Atlantic, there were 50 of us on board. In spite of the fact that we formed a small colony, the great loneliness of the surroundings made us seem few in number. There were four of us in the owners' quarters, and the remaining 46 persons lived forward. There were four officers, the sailing master, the first mate, the navigator and the boatswain. In the steward's department, there were six persons. The first steward and the second steward were responsible for waiting on the owner's table and keeping the owner's quarters in order. The chef cooked the owner's meals, and very good they were. The ship's cook did the cooking for the crew. There were two messmen, one to serve and wash dishes for the officer's mess, and one for the crew's mess, for although the officers and crew ate at the same time, of course, their meals were served separately. Two engineers, a chief engineer and his assistant, were necessary in order to care for all the electrical equipment on board. Early in the trip, we heard by radio of the disaster which had befallen the Rofa, one of the smaller class which was racing for the Queen's Cup. She had been dismasted in a sudden squall, and although all the crew had been rescued by a tanker, the vessel sank during the night while it was being towed back and was lost. We were now the only ladies in the race to Spain, for the Roffa had been the only other yacht with a lady on board. After hearing of the Roffa's misadventure, we realised that it was not to be expected that Father Neptune would make our way easy all the way across, and sure enough, he was about to treat us to some stormy weather. Before we came down to dinner on our eighth day out, a fresh-reaching breeze had increased in force until the balloon jib-topsail carried away once more. The sea kept getting rougher and rougher, and we raced along now and then, sticking our nose into a wave and soaking the deck with spray until we shook it clear again. The barometer kept falling ominously, and the sky was covered with threatening cloud streamers. About 4.30 the next morning, a heavy squall struck us violently and unexpectedly. The wind blew from 40 to 50 miles an hour, the boat heeled over until the gauge registered an inclination of 25 degrees and the lee rail was a good two feet under water. I was sound asleep at the time the squall began and I was thrown over the canvas strip stretched along the side of my bunk to keep me from rolling out and hurled clear across the room until I was brought up with a jerk against the chest of drawers opposite my berth. As the drawers were many in number and each had two knobs on it, the awakening was rude and unpleasant in the extreme. When I had picked myself up, I decided to seek solace and company, so I endeavoured to make my way to my father and mother's stateroom. Easier said than done, however, on account of the incredible slant of the boat and her wild plunging each time she dived into a head sea. By a combination of sliding and walking, however, I finally managed to get there, only to find that I was not the only one who had been ill-treated, Miss Walters had waked to find that her ceiling was well underwater, and that her portholes were so far submerged that one of them, which had not been properly sealed at the top, had developed a leak. From this port a small stream of the Atlantic Ocean was pouring into her bunk, and she too had been obliged to take refuge in my father's and mother's stateroom. The skipper was on deck as usual, and we could hear all hands working frantically to reduce sail. At last the topsails were furled. Although the blinding rain and wind made the task extremely difficult, and under mainsail, staysail, foresail, and jib, the boat rowed far more easily and still made excellent progress. It was a great relief to us to find that she was so seaworthy and sailed so comfortably, shipping surprisingly little water. The squall, the worst of the trip, blew itself out in four and a half hours but was followed by other less violent squalls, which continued at intervals for two days. We lived in our oilskins and got very tired of hanging on to grab rails and crawling up and down companionway steps on all fours, but otherwise we got along very well. There was one dinner at which I was heard to offer a prize to anyone who should last out the meal, an entirely disinterested offer and intended primarily for my own encouragement, but the chef's good food enabled me to weather the crisis, so that even I qualified for the prize at the coffee. At last, the wind moderated and the sun came out. It was a great joy to feel that our anxieties were over for the moment and that we had a chance to get thoroughly dried out. Shortly afterwards, we saw a sight that made us thankful that we had weathered our storm without any damage. A merchant schooner, the third and last of the vessels sighted on the trip across with her topmast snapped off near the foremost head, sailed close by us, so close that we could see all the details of how she had suffered. Now that our anxieties had subsided, however, we began to worry again about the whereabouts of the Atlantic. Ordinarily, we attempted to keep our own position a secret, but curiosity proved too much for us, and once we exchanged positions with her. From this, we found that she was about 50 miles further north than we were, but only one mile further east. Balloon jibs or not, surely we were in the running if we were only a mile astern. Undoubtedly, we had struck favourable wind and weather conditions, so we determined not to give away our position again, but to see what secrecy and hard work would do for us. This, however, did not prevent the radio operator on the Eleanor from having little radio chats with the operator on the Atlantic in an effort to find out a great deal about the Atlantic without giving away any information about his own boat, and the operator on the Atlantic retaliated in kind. "'What kind of weather are you having?' inquires the Eleanor. "'I don't know. What about you?' answers the Atlantic. "'I haven't the slightest idea,' says our operator." although the boat is heeled far over and he hears the wind howling outside. Oh, "'What time have you?' asked the Atlantic, but fortunately our operator remembers at the crucial moment that if the Atlantic knows what our time is, she will know our longitude. He therefore answers in terms of Greenwich time, and so the little game goes on. When we were some 400 miles from Spain and had reason to believe that we might be leading, Suddenly a great calamity fell upon us, we ran into a calm, and I hope I shall never be called upon to pass through such a period of agony again. While we imagined the Atlantic and the Guinevere enjoying a good breeze and tearing along towards Spain, we rolled on a calm sea and our sails slatted uselessly. But fortunately for us, just before the Atlantic and the Guinevere overtook us, we got a good breeze from the northeast. Now, at last, we could make our final dash for Spain. By this time, the Eleanor seemed to us like a person, someone whom we knew intimately. She heeled over gracefully and made splendid time, as if she understood our predicament and realised what was at stake. I have yet to see a more beautiful sight than the last few nights on board after we had picked up a good wind. The stars were a magnificent spectacle, and as we fled through the darkness, the boat shook off the white spray and left a phosphorescent trail behind her as she set herself steadily towards the goal. But we had another nervous crisis through which to pass. So far we did not know our position with regard to the other boats, and although we hoped that we were ahead, still we had no positive proof of this. On the last night out, the wireless operator on the Atlantic permitted our operator to listen to a message which he was sending to Santander, in which he gave her position. From this, we learned that we were 34 miles ahead. The Guinevere he reported to be four miles behind the Atlantic. So far, so good. But when we realised that we had come nearly 3,400 miles, 34 miles did not seem like much of a lead. According to our calculations, we had some 17 hours yet to sail, and if the Atlantic should be favoured with a strong reaching gale, she might make up two miles an hour and get there first. Moreover, there was always the possibility that we might be becalmed and she might not. The wind was very fresh, so fresh that we had shortened sail. It was on this occasion that Mother sent a message to Captain Barr to put up the topsails. From this, the reader may see that by this time she was thoroughly imbued with the spirit of the race, and had no intention whatever of being drowned. That night, very little sleep was had by anyone on board, and, to add to our distress, towards morning the wind began to moderate. The great question was whether the Atlantic's wind was also moderating, and this we had no way of ascertaining. Very soon we were surrounded by a fleet of fishing boats, all of which had been given a holiday to come out and meet any yachts they saw approaching the coast, there were so many of them that we felt certain that the price of fish would be very high indeed the next morning at Saint André, They were most enthusiastic and approached us blowing their whistles. The fishermen clapped their hands and waved their berets wildly. One boat passed close by us, and the men held up two fingers to show that we were second. That was a bad moment for us, for we were afraid the Atlantic had slipped in ahead of us but then they soon saw the consternation on our faces and, grasping our predicament, shouted Nina and pointed to us. Then we knew that only the Nina of the smaller class which was racing for the Queen's Cup and had started a week before we did had arrived and that we were first in our class and winner of the King's Cup. Thus reassured, we continued our course. The fishing boats, many of them, started to follow us and were surprised to find that although they were motor-driven, they were unable to keep up with the Eleanor. Gradually, they dropped behind, looking in the distance like beetles with enormous antenna, owing to their long poles sticking out on each side from which their nets were trawled. A new problem now arose. The land was in sight, a blue, misty streak in the distance, we were anxious to identify the coast for a delay of a few hours, if by any mischance we were obliged to hunt for the harbour, might easily prove fatal. The excitement was intense. At last, a lighthouse was sighted, but instead of allaying our anxiety, this only increased it, for it appeared to be a round tower instead of the octagonal one we were expecting. I suggested that perhaps we were approaching the coast of Ireland but my remark was regarded as untimely levity, unworthy of notice. Finally, as we drew nearer to the land, we were able to see that the lighthouse was an octagonal building after all. A slight haze had been responsible for softening its outlines and making it appear round. A great sigh of relief went up, and we began to breathe again. As we approached the finish line, the wind began to soften. We strained our eyes in looking back to see whether there was any boat behind us, and the captain, whose nerves were worn raw from excitement and lack of sleep, was horrified to see a sail bearing down on the harbour from the northwest. It was becoming increasingly evident that we would be obliged to make a short tack in order to fetch the finish line, and for a little while, the fear that that sail meant that the Atlantic was arriving first after all, clutched him by the throat. At last, the sail came near enough for us to see that it belonged to a fishing boat and we all felt relieved once more. A few moments later, we crossed the finish line and then we knew that the victory was ours and that no one could take it from us. We finished at 15 minutes and 28 seconds after three by Greenwich Mean Time after logging 3,411 miles. The voyage had taken us 16 days, 19 hours, 45 minutes and 28 seconds. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.